Good morning. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, open up to Genesis 2. Genesis chapter 2. Uh, by way of reminder, if you were with us last, meet, last week, we talked about evangelism. And if you've had the opportunity this week, um, maybe that was to share the gospel with someone, have a spiritual conversation, invite them to church, pray with someone, to stop by the table, the, the shelf out here in the hallway. Make sure you write their initials on one of these rocks so we can be praying for them and praying with you as you continue to have conversations with those folks. And so we're starting to see those rocks fill up even after one week, which is really encouraging um, for me to be able to see that. Well, hey, Genesis chapter 2, we're starting a new series today called Love and Marriage. Um, it's, it's February, and we're going to talk about that here in a second. I thought maybe in our bumper that Thomas would put that uh, Frank Sinatra song from Married with Children, Love and Marriage, but he didn't. So that's all right. You can listen to it on your way home. Well, hey, will you stand with me in honor of reading God's Word as we place ourselves under the authority of the Scriptures this morning, Genesis chapter 2. We're going to read verses 20 through 25, and God's Word says this, The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept and God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. And then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. Verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. And both the man and his wife were naked yet felt no shame. Let's pray. God, we love you. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I pray now that as we walk through this passage together this morning, God, would your spirit teach us in this area of marriage? God, help us to understand more fully from your perspective and your design how marriage is to operate and to function. And God, may we adjust our lives accordingly. So Lord, would you give us ears to hear from you today? Father, would you give us soft hearts? We don't want to just be hearers, Lord. We want your word to change us from the inside out. But Father, most of all, we pray for obedient hands and feet, that we would live out the truths, that we would be doers of the word, as James says, with what we encounter in the scriptures today. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, so you can kind of position your hearing this morning. I'm going to give you the opportunity again. We talked several weeks ago. We, when we teach the scriptures, we want to make sure that what we're teaching, um, again, not just makes its way to our ears, but also to our hearts. And so at the end of the message today, if we can throw up that number, um, just got one question I want you to think on as we're teaching this morning. What's one thing you learned about God's design for marriage today? And you'll have the opportunity at the end of the message, you can text that number. So in the very first line, the number that you're texting to is that first one, then you'll put in that second number in the actual message with your answer in there. That helps me um, as I'm teaching and as I'm writing these messages to ensure that I'm doing things and, and teaching in such a way that you're able to understand and grasp what the scriptures say. And so please, 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 we'll show that at the end of the message as well. Um, if you're able, send that in and that helps me know uh, that doing an okay job. So Hey, years ago when I was in my first role as a youth pastor, shortly after I had taken that position, I had one of my first student baptisms. There was a young lady in our youth group. She had given her life to Jesus. So a few Sundays after that, we scheduled baptisms at our church with her and along with a few others. 
And I vividly remember that morning, that was probably 12, 13 years ago, somewhere around there, because that day on that baptism, I was so nervous. It was still early in my ministry, so getting up in front of people made me nervous at that point in time. I was never confident in the things that I was going to say, and I can remember literally shaking from the nerves that I was feeling having to do that baptism. We were in the back of the platform at the church that we were at at the time. We walked down into the baptism tank that was on that platform. Um, at our church now, we're baptizing on March 5th. And you'll see down here, we use a horse trough now to baptize people. Back in the day, in the older churches, you actually, as a pastor, had to like go down into the water with people. I remember at my last, or two churches ago that I served at, they had these big uh, uh, waders that you would wear for like fly fishing. Well, they didn't tell me as a new youth pastor there that one of the waders had a hole in them. And I'll never forget doing baptism there. I was wearing gray khaki pants because it was a church you had to dress up a little bit. Gray khaki pants, and I went down into the water, and it was real warm. And immediately, you could just feel it, like soaking. It's like, oh my gosh, am I peeing because I'm so nervous? You know, it was like that feeling. And I got out. I remember at that church, like my leg was just covered in water, and I had to get up and do announcements after that as well. So that was wonderful. But here at this first church about 12 years ago, I get down into the water. I can remember looking out upon the congregation, saying a few words, and typically, this is how a baptism is supposed to go for a pastor. Typically, you put your hand on the individual's back. They take their hand, they plug their nose, and then as the pastor, typically, you raise up your right hand before you guide them under the water, and you would say words that sounded like this that I baptize you in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. That's how it's supposed to go. But that day that I vividly remember, the words that came out of my mouth were not that. Instead, for my first baptism as a youth pastor, I put my hand on this young lady's back. She plugged her nose. I lifted up my right hand, and these were the words that came out of my mouth. God is my witness. By the power vested in me by the state of Ohio... I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's how you do a wedding, if you didn't know that. <laughs> not a baptism. And I'm not, even, I'm not even joking with you to this day. Every time I do a baptism, I pause for a moment. I'm like, all right, what are the right words that I have to say? All that to be said, for the next three weeks, we're talking about marriage. We're not talking about baptism, but being Valentine's Day in a couple of weeks, February is the love month for so many people, there's no better time for us because it's on the mind for us to explore what God says about this institution, this covenant of marriage. That we need to know the truth of scripture in regard to marriage. Why? Think about this. This is just really was helpful for me. If we don't understand fully what God's standard is for marriage, then how do we know what we're supposed to be shooting for, right? Like we need to know what the scripture says because if we don't have a standard set, it's like anything in life. If you don't have a standard for marriage, here's the scary thing, then anything goes and can be called marriage. But the reality is the scripture teaches us that God instituted marriage and his word gives us clear instruction for this sacred covenant. And so this week, we're gonna look at marriage in general from Genesis chapter 2. Next week, I'm going to be talking about the role of the husband in the covenant of marriage from 1 Peter 3 and Ephesians 5. And then our third and final week, uh, Pastor Joe is going to preach on the woman's role in marriage. Notice I'm not doing that one. 
That's called delegation and leadership, if, if you didn't know that. And also, I wrote this in my notes, also, I'm not stupid. So you pass that off to the, to, the, to the other guy, right? So let's look at God's design for marriage from the scriptures. The first place that marriage is even seen in the scriptures, the book of Genesis. Up to this point, you can look back one chapter where we're picking up in Genesis. This moment in history, God created all things in six days, And as part of his creation, the scripture teaches that the pinnacle of it all, the only part of God's creation, this is so neat for you and I, that bears the image, the mark of the image of God was the man. We see that in Genesis 1.27, that God from the dust of the earth breathes life into the lungs of this man, Genesis 2.7, and gives him the task of working the garden in which God placed him, the garden of Eden, Genesis 2.15. But then something interesting is brought to light here in the book of Genesis, this moment in history that leads to our first point. Two points today, if you're a note taker, write these down. First point is this, is that marriage was created by God. Marriage was created by God. We see in Genesis of everything that God created up to this point, over and over in Genesis 1, God declares it to be good. Every day of creation, God would create, then the end of that day, he would look out over his creation and he would see that it's good, the scripture says. But on day six in chapter one, which we see expanded upon, day six is expanded upon in the beginning of Genesis chapter two, God creates man. The Bible says he takes that man, he places him in the garden to work and tend it, but God's creative work wasn't done because something wasn't good. This is interesting. Notice this in Genesis 2.18. It'll be up on our screen. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. That breaks the pattern and trend that we've seen so far in Genesis. But he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. So I'll make a helper corresponding to him. God saw that this man that he created, that there was something in him that needed a companion, a helper, a complement to him. And so what does God do? He needs Adam to see this need inside of him as well. So in Genesis 2, verse 19, one verse before we started, God brings all of the animals of creation to Adam for him to name. Pause there. This has always fascinated me. I did a little research on this week. Can you imagine that, naming all the animals on the earth? Like, that's no small task for any human being, right? I did a little research. Sometimes I'm a Bible nerd, all right? And I ask myself, how many animals would Adam have had to name at this moment in history? So a little research. This is free this morning if you don't like this, because I thought there was like millions of animals and sea life and, and bugs and amphibians and all of this other stuff that he would have had to name. But people much smarter than me, and we can talk about this later, estimate that if Adam only had to name the kinds of animals, if you've ever been to the Creation Museum, Answers in Genesis, um, there's stuff that we can get into later, but just hang on to that word, the kinds of animal, that it would only have been 2,500 animals that he had to name. Because the scripture doesn't really indicate, indicate anything about like the bugs and the marine life and all that kind of stuff. So this just blew my mind. Even if Adam had to name 2,500 animals, that's a lot. And Answers in Genesis says that he would have had to name one animal every five seconds, and it would have taken him three hours and 45 minutes to do this with a five-minute coffee break every hour. Good job, Adam. I think that's sweet. If you don't think that's cool, I don't know. You can just ignore that. That's free. But what's the point? There wasn't a creature in all of God's creation up to this point that was like Adam. And Adam needed to see that. There wasn't someone suitable for him, a complementary opposite that was made for him. So what did God do? 
Genesis 2.22, he creates Eve. Marriage wasn't Adam's idea. This is so important for us to understand in our culture these days. Adam didn't just go, hey, God, got an idea. Let me know what you think about this. Marriage wasn't God's idea. Marriage was God's idea and God's design, not Adam's. It was God's. God takes a rib from Adam's side, forms it into the woman. Did you all know this? Check this out. Did you know on the right side of the man, if you feel your rib cage and you count up your ribs, none of you all are doing it because that's not true. I was making that up, right? That's not real. That's not real. I was just seeing it. I was seeing, I was literally seeing if any man in here would be like, whoa, really? I'm missing one on the right? That's not true. All right. He takes a rib from Adam's side and he forms the woman. What does that show us? Goodness. Listen close. Are we ready? Eve was different from Adam, but no less than Adam. Husband and wife are equal in value, both made in the image of God, but different in function. We understand that? Same value, different function. I was told my wife yesterday, we were trying to think of how to illustrate this. I brought with me a dollar this morning. This dollar has value. There's a certain value attributed to this. But there's something else that you can also have that has the exact same value. What is it? Four quarters. These carry the identical value, but their function is different. There's some places you can use a dollar that you can't use quarters and vice versa. There's some places where both will work just fine. Although their, their, their value is identical, their function is totally different. And that's what we need to see here in Genesis chapter two. When God created the man and woman, God created them with equal value, but different function. Men are not women and women are not men. They are uniquely designed by God and it is good. It's very good according to our creator. And when the man and the woman come together in the covenant of marriage, they form this beautiful partnership that was designed by God. Notice the significance of Genesis 2.22. I have never noticed this until this week. Look at what the scripture says. That the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into the woman. And look at this. Underline this in your Bible if you can. And he brought her to the man. God brought Eve to Adam. What does that show us? That marriage is so much more than a legalized civil union recognized before the state. It's a marriage covenant, a spiritual union, not just between a man and a woman, but between a man, a woman, and God. That's what marriage is. It's a union between three parties, not just two. Friends, we gotta understand this morning, this morning marriage was thought up by God. It was designed by God. It was structured by God. Therefore, hear me, marriage is God's. It's not ours. It's God's. That means he, deci he decides how it works, and he decides how it functions, and he decides everything about it, not us. And no matter how much culture, we're seeing it, right? Let's just talk about it. Let's just talk about it. We've got to equip the local church. No matter how much culture may try to hijack marriage, if God is the one that came up with it, and he's the one that designed it, and he sets the standards for it, God makes the rules of it. Not the state, not the federal government, none of those things. Marriage is God's. And if we got a problem with that, take it up with him. Yeah? 
It's what the Word of God says. God designed marriage, not us. Second, this is my favorite, marriage, therefore, was purposed by God. That he designed it, but God designed marriage with a purpose. Look at verse 23 of Genesis chapter 2. I love this verse. It says, the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. If you have a hard copy of the scriptures, you guys know I love to make you highlight, underline, and circle. You need to do that with verse 23. I think this is one of the most significant verses in the book of Genesis because this verse is different from the rest of the verses in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 are very historical in nature, a literal thing that happened. God created. These events took place. But verse 23 of Genesis chapter 2 is a poem. It changes the literary style in verse 23. It actually is a a poem. Essentially, when God brought Eve to Adam in the previous verse, Adam broke out into poetry when he saw the woman. There's another way we could phrase this. Adam broke out into song the moment that God came. God's like the father of the bride coming down the aisle. Right? If you're married, you've been there before. You know what I'm talking about. The moment that your your bride-to-be comes around the the corner with her father arm in arm, every man in this room, one thing thing happened. You probably keeled over like this because you're overwhelmed or you just started crying. That's verse 23. Adam breaks out into song when Eve comes around the corner brought by God to him. Why? Because God had created his complementary opposite, the one who is like him but different from him. This is amazing what's going on in the scripture. Look at what Adam says. I use the CSB Bible translation. This is my favorite one, especially in regard to this verse, because of the first four words of Adam's poem. What does he say there? This one at last. He had all of the animals of creation paraded before him, and there was not a complementary opposite to Adam. But the moment that God shows up with Eve, I imagine Adam, what he probably did is he probably like fist bumped the air, put his knees on his hands, and he's like, God, woo, you did good, man. You did good. And he just starts singing, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman because she was taken from man. Adam was pumped. If you're married in this room this morning, I pray and hope that you know Adam's feeling here. I was thinking about this, that as men, we were once single, and then a woman was brought to us by God. That let's just be honest. Let's just be honest. I know, I know all of the men in this room. If you're married, your wife's too good for you, right? Yeah, we're on the same page, right? And that's, I was, I was, I'm surprised some of the wives were like, amen, right? We know. We know. So you were single, and by the grace of God, he brings a woman to you. Probably her, a little bit of her grace, too, but we, we get it, right? And now, by the grace of God, she is your wife. And as I was preparing this week, one of my prayers for all the men in this room would that we would never lose the joy that we see in Adam's heart here in verse 23. At last, this one, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. God, thank you. A verse that I have circled in my Bible, and I hope you do too, is Proverbs 18, 22. Remember when Solomon said this? that a man who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. 
I mean, what an amazing section of scripture that the Lord gives us here. And there's so much we could break apart here, but I want to talk about the purpose of marriage in these verses from this text. I want to give you two purposes this morning, intimacy and illustration. And I promise, don't be concerned, we're going to do this in a very tasteful fashion. Intimacy and illustration, the two purposes of marriage. There's so much we could talk about here about the glory of God and so many other things, but I think these two sum them up, intimacy and illustration. Verse 24, look at what the scripture says. It says that this is why a man leaves his father and his mother in bonds with his wife. That means get out of your parents' basements, fellas. You see that there? It's probably, and there's probably a parenthesis or a subnote in the Bible somewhere. You gotta leave your mom and your dad and you bond with your wife and then what does the scripture say? They become one flesh. That at the marriage covenant, there's a bond that occurs between a husband and a wife. A union of the, the flesh. What's that tell us? That the first purpose of marriage is this word intimacy. I want us to think about this for a second. That's a word that means that it's a, a closeness that is gifted in the covenant of marriage between a husband and a, a wife. Three kinds, three kinds of intimacy that are gifted to the husband and the wife that make up that idea of becoming one flesh. You have a man and a woman who in this covenant between them and God unionize into to one flesh, which by the way, let's just talk, we just, let's just talk about it. We've got nothing else going on this morning. Um, these three types of intimacy are reserved for the marriage covenant, right? It's like playing with fire. Don't mess with that outside of the bounds that you're supposed to. Fire quickly gets out of control. These three types of intimacy are reserved for marriage. When we play with them outside of marriage, you're setting yourself up for disaster. Don't listen to what culture says. God's way is always better. Promise you. Always better. So let's talk about these three types of intimacy. The first, reserved for a man and woman, people of opposite gender, is spiritual intimacy. That's the idea of one flesh. That when we get married, that we are choosing to unite ourselves with another individual who should share our same beliefs about Jesus Christ and all things spiritual. Ladies, stop settling. Don't, don't compromise or settle for less than God's best for you. Men, stop settling. God created you for one flesh and spiritual intimacy here. Make sure it's someone who shares the same spiritual and biblical values that you do because it's gonna make life a whole lot better. Do you know literally dozens of times from Genesis to Revelation that God warns about uniting yourself with someone who does not share the same spiritual beliefs as you? That's a dangerous road to travel. And when God calls us to the spiritual marriage covenant, Part of being one flesh with your spouse is spiritual intimacy. Here's the second one. There's an emotional intimacy. Think about this. In the context of marriage, we should develop an emotional bond that we don't and shouldn't have with any other human on the planet. Your spouse should know you better than anyone else. They should be able to see into the deep, dark recesses of your soul in places that no one else is allowed because God has bonded you together in a very important one flesh covenant. Lastly, and this one's twofold, it's physical intimacy. And again, we're gonna do this tastefully. God created marriage for a husband and wife to know each other physically. 
Again, reserved for the marriage covenant. That is a gift from God, not for humans, for married humans. God designed that physical intimacy to to be this special gift from him for two individuals, a man and a woman, who become married. And it's this idea of becoming one flesh, uniting yourself together. And again, we see warnings all over Scripture of the danger of that outside of the marriage covenant. But think about this too when we think of one flesh. In the physical intimacy that a married couple's been invited into, marriage is also the avenue of procreation. Think about this. Genesis chapter 1, what is the first thing that God told Adam and Eve after he created and brought them together? Verse 28 of Genesis 1, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Let me put that in the modern phrase. What did God tell Adam and Eve to do after he brought them together in the covenant of marriage? He said, have babies. Now, I fully understand, and we're not going to get into the intricacies of this today. Sometimes I fully know because of the fall of humanity, sometimes there are biological limitations, and there's reasons that this sometimes cannot take place. But very generally speaking from the scriptures, part of the one flesh covenant is the invitation for married people to have children. But when we think about this idea, again, purposed here for intimacy, part of that is the ability to have children. The ability to have children comes with a very general and specific responsibility. We need to talk about this this morning. This is so important. Generally speaking, physical intimacy has the ability to produce children. Biology, yeah? So let's just talk about this for a second. If you're going to engage in that, be responsible enough to raise your kids. God said so. If you're going to engage in that act that was a gift from God to humanity, be responsible enough to raise your kids. It's sad that we have to say that these days. Scripture says in Psalm 127, verse 3, that children are a blessing from the Lord, not a burden. A burden is something that you try to get rid of. A blessing is something that you foster and grow. Understand that? Let's stop being okay with culture telling us that our children are a burden. No, the Word of God says and the authority of God's Word says that they are a blessing from God. If we're going to engage in physical intimacy, we better also engage in the responsibility to raise those children and praise God for the men and women that step up when other people won't to raise those children. What a blessing from God. Physical intimacy comes with responsibility. Second, physical intimacy comes with a very, not just general, but a specific responsibility for those of us that claim to be followers of Jesus. That if we engage in the physical intimacy gifted to us by God in marriage, we have the responsibility to raise them up to know Jesus and to give them every opportunity to follow him. Your kids aren't Christian because they grew up in your home. They're Christian because they made a decision to follow Jesus. But you as a follower of Jesus and their parent need to give them every opportunity to make that decision. I love what the scripture says that when we have children as followers of Jesus Christ, that we're supposed to send them out from our homes as messengers and ambassadors from the kingdom of God. Think about this. Psalm 127 verse 3 and 4 says that sons, children, are indeed a heritage or a blessing from the Lord, offspring, a reward. But look at verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior 
are the children born in one's youth. The scripture is so clear for us today that when when we're blessed by God with children, that we now have a responsibility to disciple those children, to raise them, to love the Lord Jesus. And every time that you and I disciple them, whether that be we engage them in the local church, Bible reading at home, praying over dinner, talking spiritual things in the car, what are we doing? The scripture paints this picture for us that we're pulling back the string on that bow until one day God says it's time to let them go. And what do you do? And you send them as a fiery dart out into culture to penetrate darkness for the kingdom of God. Folks, with the purpose of intimacy within marriage, we also have a deep, deep, eternal responsibility. As a follower of Jesus, don't have children if you're not going to disciple them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You have a responsibility according to the scriptures. The purpose of intimacy comes with responsibility. Think about this. This broke my heart this week. When you think of discipling your children, if you come to church on a regular basis... The church will get maybe roughly 60 hours a year to disciple your kids. Three, four days. Their school, if your kids are in the school system, gets 1,000 hours a year to disciple our kids. Whoa. That's almost 20 times as much. Think about this. You and I, as parents, we get 7,700 hours a year to disciple our children. If half of that is sleep, I know if they're younger, that's not always true, but if half of that is sleep, that means as a parent who's a follower of Jesus, tasked with the responsibility by God to disciple your kids, it means that you and I have four times more time with them than their school does and 64 times more time with them than their church does. Will we point our children to Jesus or have we farmed it out to other people? If we want to raise up flaming arrows sent into culture with the message that Jesus saves, parents, it's our responsibility. Everything else is just a support to what we should already be doing. Intimacy comes with responsibility. And lastly, when we think of the purpose of marriage, marriage is the purpose for intimacy, but also for illustration. Illustration of what? Simply the gospel. It's so significant. Look at verse 25 here, Adam and Eve's story. It says, both the man and his wife were naked and they felt no shame. We could scan right over that. But think about this. They were both totally exposed. Nothing was hidden in perfect relationship with one another. What is that a picture of? It's the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel for you and I that we can be in perfect relationship with the God of the universe, nothing hidden from him, totally open in perfect unity because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. We don't have to be like Adam a chapter later covering up with the leaves that he found and ultimately the animal skins. No, we can be restored to perfect relationship with God, nothing hidden from him. Paul quotes these verses later in Ephesians chapter 5 when he talks about the marriage covenant and he says these words, for this reason man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Does that sound familiar? Then what's he say in verse 32? This mystery is profound, but he tells you the marriage covenant is what? It's a picture of Christ in the church. 
It's a picture of Christ in the church. We're going to get into this the next couple of weeks, but just think of it this way. How is this a picture of Christ in the church? Men, husbands, we're called to love, lead, serve, and sacrifice for our wives. That's your job description. It's what Christ did and does for his church. Wives, you're called to love, respect, submit, and partner with your husband. That's what the church is called to do for Jesus and his kingdom. Our marriages are a picture of Jesus in the church, a picture of the gospel. That's why it's the number one attacked institution in our country right now. Because you break apart that picture, you can invalidate the meaning of the gospel for people. We've got to protect marriage. Not only that, but just as the two become one flesh in Genesis 2.24, it was supposed to be an unbreakable covenant. An unbreakable covenant just went as Jesus, he died for his church. We repent of our sin, we put our faith in him. The scripture says that then I enter into an unbreakable covenant with Jesus Christ that makes me right before God. Romans 8 says this, for I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any created thing. That basically encompasses all of it. And what's Paul say? None of those things can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Marriage is a picture of Jesus and his church, a picture of the gospel. Its purpose is intimacy and illustration. Let's close with this. I love this story. read this years ago, 2005. The Guinness Book of World Records found a couple Percy and Florence Aerosmith were their name. They held two Guinness records. One was the longest marriage of any living couple, 80 years. Wow. Second, the largest uh, married couple's combined age. Between the two of them, they were 205 years old, their combined ages. Guinness Book of World Records sat them down. Mr. and Mrs. Aerosmith, they've since passed on years ago. But they, they asked them, what advice would you give young couples for a long-lasting marriage? I love what Florence said, the wife. She said, you must never go to sleep, bad friends. If you've had a fight, you make up and never be afraid to say sorry. Man, that's a good word, isn't it? Percy's advice was different. They asked Percy, what's your advice on the secret to a long-lasting marriage? Percy was a man of few words. He said, I have just two. Yes, dear. (laughs) And all the men said, amen. Y'all, what a gift that marriage is to humanity. That God designed it for us, purposed it for us to ultimately be a picture back to a world of Christ and his church. Let's pray. God, we love you. Father, thank you for your word. God, I pray that today was helpful for the local church. And for my friends in the room that are married, God, I pray that it reinvigorates in our souls. God, what a beautiful thing that you've invited us into, this covenant with our spouse. God, not just to be enjoyed by us, to be a picture to those around us of how much you love the church. For those in here that are, are single, God, may you stir in their hearts, Lord, to to pursue your best for them in this area. God, that they would never settle for anything less 
than how you've designed marriage. And I pray if anybody in here doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, Lord, as we talk about the gospel, Lord, we can be made right with God again through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And all it takes is us acknowledging our sinfulness, believing what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross and putting our faith in him. I'm going to pray if, no, if anybody in here has not done that yet, that today would be the day they would do so. We love you, Lord. I pray as we sing that it's a sweet sound to the corridors of heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.